The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that you are a God of great love, vast and wide and long, high and deep. You are that for us, and as we just sang, the question that's rhetorical, what, what can separate us? What can sever us from being connected to that love? Well, because you connected us, nothing. You are that love, you're that lover, you are that keeper of us, your people, your beloved. So we thank you, and we, we sing that in praise, and now we are going to consider it in your word. We'll, we'll consider that person that you are and what that means for us. And as we do, Lord, would you help us to, to not just rehearse the facts and, and to be kind of uh, reminded of the truths, but would you help us to revel, not only to remember, but also to revel who you are, what's true of you. So teach us now, we pray. Open up this passage to us. Build your church and honor your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Can we back off the volume just a little bit? It sounds a little odd to me. So we come to the end of the book of Jude. We find a familiar doxology, a, a word of praise or honor. You may have heard it in some other context, maybe at the end of a wedding or at the end of some sort of a official ceremony. It's, it's rather common. It is soaring in its language. It is full and big, full of magnificent imagery, even more so when you consider it in its proper context here at the end of the book of Jude. This book of Jude the dominant impression of Jude that many people have, if they have any impression of Jude at all, it's not a common book, but, it, but if anybody has any thought about Jude, it's viewed as being pretty stern, even harsh and attacking. And for sure, as we saw, the middle section of it has a lot of heat as Jude addresses the false teaching that is dangerous and certain to be in the midst of the church, inside the walls of the city. That's there. But as we've seen, that's actually not the focus of the book. As we saw last week, verses 17 to 23, Jude is actually much more interested in faithful Christians than in false teachers. He's much more interested in us and in our faithful reaching out of our hands towards God, our, our robust pursuit of God and our pursuit of other people around us who are tempted and tried and who are in need of help. And so he wraps it up saying, kind of, yeah, for sure, there's false teachers, uh-huh, sure. But you, beloved, keep reaching out your hand towards God and towards others. Other people need him and are around you. And you can do that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of all of the, the turmoil around you that is attempting to overthrow you or undermine you and drag you down in the depths. You can do that confidently pursuing God and others, not because you are strong and able, but because he is, and he will keep you. That's where we end this morning. 
with that beautiful thrust of the closing doxology of this letter. Jude ends giving glory to God, but it's also of great benefit to us as we consider what it is about God that's glorious and what that means for us, who he is and who he is for us. So we're going to look at this, and there's not a lot new to learn here this morning. It's more like familiar truth to remember and revel in. So may God help us to do that this morning as we look at the last two verses of Jude. I'll read them and then draw two observations from them. Here it is. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Closing the book of Jude, I'm going to make two observations from it. Here's the first. I'm going to say this in several different ways, emphasize different words here to kind of make you kind of see the different points here. God is the one who will bring his people into his presence. God is the one who will bring his people into his presence. God is the one who will bring his people into his presence. That's what happens and done by whom, and it's certain. Verse 24 begins now, and it's a bit like a pause to kind of settle. Okay, catch your breath. All the ungodliness and all the sensual sin and the temptation that's, that's in all that, and all the challenge of scoffers who mock and make themselves the authority, that's all the constant context of our lives. Uh-huh. It's all there, it's all a constant slog. Yes, but, and you gotta keep on after the but. Because what comes next is, the end, these two verses. The problem with us often is we stop right there. If we had ended where we ended last week, we would end up with there is a really constant, challenging context. Keep reaching for God and keep reaching towards others. Carry on. Keep slogging on. Our trouble often is we stop there and see it like life is going to be hard. Yeah, but now. Take your breath. Now. To him who is able, verse 25, to the only God, our Savior. He's about to speak a word of closing praise to this God, but before he does so, he's going to tell us who this God is. If the book of Jude begins with our identity, verses 1 and 2, point out who we are, right out of the gate, it starts there. Well, here at the finish line, it's God's identity. Tells us who we are and tells us who he is. He's the only God. There are no others. The so-called gods of every, every other religion everywhere are not gods at all. There is only one God, this one. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who is the Savior 
of his people. In the New Testament, that word Savior is often attached to Jesus, and for good reason, obviously. But before the birth of Jesus, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament was also known as the God of grace, the Savior. He was pleased to identify himself as the one who rescues us, not just rules us, rescues us, saves. The Old Testament is the story of this Savior God and his people who need him constantly and watch him come through constantly. He saved Noah from mockers and the flood. He saved Jacob from famine and Joseph from death and their children then from bondage in Egypt. He saved from Philistines and saved from Goliath and saved from Assyria and on and on. You can kind of jump through the Old Testament. You can see, oh yeah, it's the story of God saving. On and on and on. It's the story of the Savior God. That's who he is. We miss a lot about God if we primarily, not only, but primarily think of him as creator and ruler. Or primarily think of him as lawgiver and judge. He is that, but not primarily. He is pleased to make himself known as savior. The God who lives face to face with the people who are constantly endangered and incapable who are again and again in some trouble and like infants cast out in the wild. He actually uses that imagery. Remember that in the prophets? He uses the imagery of a newborn baby cast out into the wild that he comes along and rescues. We are like infants in the wild, vulnerable and without any resources, absolutely incapable and doomed. That's us. That's our situation. Do you realize that's you and that's your situation? And I don't mean to ask that like intellectually. I, I think probably most of us would track with that intellectually. I get that. But the, the helpful piece is if that lives as a present felt reality in you. Because what's going to come here, the God who saves is seen to be all the more sweet when he's seen in the context of, I'm in need of a savior. I walk every day, you walk every day in physically in physical need of a savior. You are so small. So vulnerable. Physically speaking. And particularly spiritually speaking. We cannot make ourselves right before God. Do you realize that? And does it live like right near the surface? Such that it, it's kind of like peeking up into, it's in the bottom of your, of your glasses frame or your contact lens frame. You can just see it always. Like I am a person who lives in need. Are you poor in spirit then? The more you realize that about yourself, the sweeter this is. This God, the only God who is, is the God who saves those who can't save themselves. You. We can't, but he is able. Verse 24 says, able to do two things. First, able to keep you from stumbling. Again, that word keep. We've seen it several times. So far, 
It's a slightly different Greek word behind our English here, but the meaning is essentially the same. Perhaps there's a slight bit more emphasis here on make secure from or guard, but the meaning is essentially the same. God is the one who holds us, who keeps us, so that we don't stumble. Like we saw last week, yes, for sure. We do have to keep ourselves. This, this was the command to us last week, the, the core command. To us, as children, like a dad commands a little child, you recall, recall this from last week if you were here, we have to reach out a hand. We have to, to reach out our hand to him like a child reaching out to a father. But as that happens, it's the father that drives the whole scenario. The father sees the problem. The father issues the command. The father has previously shaped the child to hear the command and to be inclined to obey it. And when the child reaches up, it's not her little hand of power that holds her. It's his. When she stubs her toe and begins to trip, he grabs her. When she lurches towards the street, he holds her. It's her hand reaching up. Yeah, that's how he keeps he keeps her from stumbling. And that's the point with God. God keeps us from stumbling. How does he do that? By his commands and warnings and discipline and by his promises and spirit illumination and spirit empowerment. Again, we've talked about this before. All that generates faith. All of that's how he keeps us. But the point here is that he, not us, he keeps us, and it will succeed. He keeps us. He does the work, and that work succeeds. He keeps us from stumbling. Not meaning that he keeps us from ever sinning. Of course not. This is stumbling like we saw back in First Peter, the, the stumbling of unbelief that is fatal, that is final, the stumbling that keeps one from the second half of this verse keeps us from the presence of God. In fact, these two things that God is able to do keep you from stumbling, and the one we're going to look at in a minute, they're really like two sides of the same coin. He keeps us from finally, fully stumbling. He keeps us, and he's the one who, secondly, makes us to stand. That's the second thing he's able to do in his saving of us. Your translation may say, able to present you. Literally, it's able to stand you. Opposite of stumbling and falling would be standing. But he, he's the one who stands us there. He, he places us there. He presents us there. That's what he does. He presents us before the presence of his glory. Before God himself. This is what we were made for. To be brought into the presence of God. His unveiled, unrestricted, no mask, no, no barrier into his presence. To be with him like we could not and cannot experience otherwise on our own. 
This glory of God, his presence, was hidden in the heavenly throne room, the sanctuary of God, far from us. But then he chose to replicate it, to, chose to bring it down here to earth and to replicate it in a way in the most holy place within the tabernacle and eventually within the temple. God present, but his full glory, you know the story, his full glory was veiled. It was, it was kept there behind, 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 and, and we were kept from it. We could not see the full presence of his glory face to face. Moses was kept from it. Moses was, was allowed to see just the back part. All the priests were kept out from seeing the, the innermost glorious presence of God. It's this thing brought near that then we're kept from. We, we can't, but we, we want to. We, we long, but we don't belong. We feel that. Think about this. Sometimes I think we, in a, in a context like this, we, we sit in a sanctuary and we talk about the glory of God, and it sounds like that's that's pretty serious church word, I guess, but if you actually stop to think about, what is that? What is glory? We can use other words to describe it. We can use words like splendor and beauty and, and honor and majesty. We can use big words like that. But another way to get at it might be to say, you feel it sometimes. You've, you've gotten a little bit in touch with what some of this glory of God looks like. And you long for more of it. You've seen it at different times in aspects of the creation. Maybe even the word came off your lips. That's glorious. What, what was it about that? I don't know, but it was awesome and magnificent and splendid. And it like, made my heart go like this. It's glorious. And you saw it. And then it faded. Or you left. And you've experienced it, maybe not just looking at creation, but you've experienced, if you're a Christian, you've had some time with God when you've been communing with him and you've thought, oh, you are so, maybe you even said, glorious. Maybe you said, wonderful or beautiful or amazing. And then that faded. And the next time you went back to that spot and opened up to that passage and kneeled down to pray in that way, it was like, I'm talking to the wall. It's not there. The glory's not there. But it was. You know it. You're, you, you, you can remember it, but it's kind of like hearing an echo. You can't actually see or hear the original. You just kind of hear the, the remnants of it, and then it kind of goes away. You've tasted the hint of what the Bible calls the glory of God, what is awesome and splendid and beautiful and wonderful and laced through all the creation because the creation is from the hand of the glorious one. It's, it's there. It's been drawn near. You long for it, but you can't get there. Not for very long. We were made for it, but we miss it. We aren't able to stand in the presence of the glory of God. But God is able to present you to that for forever.
we shall see him face to face and not perish, nor will the glory perish. We will never leave and the glory won't fade. We'll never be cast out because he's the one who brought us in and caused us to stand there blameless. In the Old Testament, the priests could sort of come, sort of, into the proximity of the glory of God's presence only after being cleansed from their sin. But we all know the story. It only lasted a little, little while for a few of them in certain times and places. The blood of the animals slain could do no more. That's the good news of the gospel. What we're talking about here in a different way is the good news of the gospel. No longer the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the Son. This is the good news of the gospel that God in grace has provided a permanent, full solution for all who trust him for forever. God the Father, God our Savior, saved us by sending his son Jesus to be cursed in our place. God brought us into his presence by sending Jesus out from his presence. He brings us into his glory by showing Jesus his wrath. That's the gospel. The good news. The God has shown himself able to justly forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness to make us blameless by placing all the blame due to us on Jesus on the cross. All who are called, all who are beloved, all who are kept, all of us in verse 1 and 2, every single one of us, he is brought near and made to stand. As we trust Christ, as we reach towards him and, and place faith in him, for sure, but he's the one who makes that happen. God saves, God is able That's what he does for us. And if, if you're here this morning, you find yourself, I'm not sure if I'm in that spot or not. The invitation is open. Come. The Bible is really clear. It is always open. Come. Come now. Reach out. Grab hold of God. Say, I need that. I need you to place my blame on Christ's cross. I need you to make me blameless. I need you to bring me into the glory that I've tasted and have longed for but never quite found. It's there. He's able to make you come in and stand. That's what he does for us. That's the gospel. And the end result is one gigantic eternal party. End of verse 24. He's able to make us stand before him blameless with great joy. Catch that. It is not he is able to make us stand before him blameless, period. I mean, it could be that. That would be true. And it's not he's able to make us stand before him blameless, forgiven. Yep, that's true too. It's not, though, stand before him blameless, finally in a state of relief. It is that too. But it's not stand before him blameless in any of those things. It's with Great joy. 
That's the language of party. It's the language of not even internal happiness or delight. It's external, it's public. Every place that word is used, it's used in the context of public. It's a seen, visible, experienced party. Not just internal delight, something that we would all see and be included in. The point is to remind us that this is all, this whole thing, this whole story is far less a courtroom drama and much more a wedding celebration. There is drama, there is, there is courtroom, there is justification. All those words are in the Bible, but it's all for the sake of a party. A party. From the moment of, I present to you all, husband and wife. From that moment on, everyone erupts in applause and cheers and the music begins. And from that moment on, from the walking down the aisle, the striking up of the music, to the signing of the license, to the reception, and I think it's going to be a gigantic one, to the reception, the champagne flows, the dancing and the feasting, it's all one big, huge, happy party. And that's what God chose to choose to, to represent to us. That's what it's like when you come into my presence. It's a Before his presence with great joy, celebration unending, all made by the God who is Savior, able to keep us from missing it. And he keeps us, and he will keep us. We don't miss it. We'll actually be right there, right on time, properly clothed in the pure righteousness of Christ, happy upon happy upon happy in our holiness, because we see him finally in unending, unveiled glory. what you were made for. And every time you rejoice at a sunset, you know it. And every time the sun finally sets, you miss it. You're going to the place where the sun never sets, but the sun is always shining upon you. In great joy, Hearts so full and so free of tension and pressure and fear and angst. Peace, joy, love multiplied. Verse 2 is true at the end also. Because of mercy, peace, and love multiplied right there forever. God has done this. He is able. And he's done it for your great good, Christian. But ultimately, he's done it for his own glory. It would do us good to hang right here for one more minute. As we start to kind of step into verse 25, to hang right here for one more minute, and let's be sure we don't miss something that's extremely important. I can say everything that I just said, and we can hear everything we just heard, and we can come to the conclusion of all of that with some beautiful and glorious truths about people redeemed by God our Savior and made clean in Christ and brought into God's presence. And we can feel deeply loved and made much of as objects of God's merciful saving affection and all that is awesomely, gloriously true. But we can miss something also, can miss something. 
all of that, that great work of God is not ultimately about us. The gospel is about us, but not ultimately about us. Any more than the creation itself from the get-go was about us. If you think about it, we didn't exist. The creation wasn't for us, we didn't exist. Ultimately, all of this, creation and the recreation, God's redemption, it's about God and God's glory for the glorification, for the praising and honoring of God, which is where verse 25 goes. But verse 24 has also gone there. It'd just be easy to miss it. Verse 24 is about God and God's glory too. The language here is not just the language of redemption and the language of party. It's also the language of sanctuary sacrifice. To be presented before God blameless, that's the language of animal on the altar. Before the presence of God and offered up sacrifice without blemish, that's what the worship services of the sanctuary were all about. God is able not just to bring us into his presence to delight in him for us. He is able to make us worthy sacrifices, living sacrifices, offerings to him, which is what he made us for, for his own glory. You know, the first question of the catechism, who is God? God is a spirit. What did he do? He made everything for what purpose? For his own glory. I think as we just saw, that is incredibly good for us. But we must remember, for his own glory. Language of Romans 12 reminds us that we are made to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That's at the core of what our identity is, in fact. We are, we are servants of his. We are called and beloved and kept as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable now and forever, that God may be worshipped by us and worshipped for what he did in us. That all the creation can see the manifold wisdom of God at work in his people who made us Vulnerable, sinful, fallen, raised up, strong, standing, certainly sure and glorious. He did that. Praise be to him. It is for our good and for his glory. So you see this point and remember it. He makes us pure so that we can come to him and enjoy him for our sake and for his sake, for his worship. It is helpful to keep that in mind because in the midst of this narcissistic world, it is always a narcissistic world and it is increasingly so. That's where we live. It could be possible as we hear messages all the time about being true to yourself and maximizing the best life that you can find for you and, and choosing and making options of what, what will 
enhance your personal brand. This world is focused on me making much of me, and it would be possible to accidentally misframe the gospel to be just some additional, some maybe more divine self-help teaching. I I should grab the gospel because that's the best way to make the most of me. That's the best way to find my greatest happiness. That's the best way to satisfy my deepest longings. I will embrace the gospel for me. And right here then comes in this message that could be helpful. Watch out for that and remember, this is all actually about him. You were made for him. He makes you to never stumble finally, but in in fact to stand permanently, yes, for your great good, but ultimately for his great glory. We are for him. Living sacrifices for forever, so that certainly includes for, for now. He's making you blameless and bringing you to himself for him for his own glory, which is also for our good. Praise be to God, which leads us to the final point. Here it is, simply. God be glorified for forever. A pronouncement. God be glorified for forever. Verse 25 then. To God our Savior, through Christ, be four things, four traits. And in pronouncing these traits, it's not that we are making these things true. This, this is a pronouncement of, of praise. We are just declaring that they are true and acknowledging our understanding of it and appreciation of it. It's, it's worship, which can only be offered through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can see here a bit of a reference as he's looping back, just kind of hinting at the false teachers who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Judas saying, it's actually the only way we can actually be with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we can rightly honor him and worship him is through Christ. Through Christ, we as people say, to you God be glory. So, I kind of look at this, just think into it. To you, God, be glory. You are beautiful and pure, captivating in the answer to our heart's longing for worship. We say so, and call others to say so too. To you be glory. And majesty, which is vast scope, grandeur, height and breadth, towering over all of our perception. Majesty just rises and makes everything else by comparison seem small and inconsequential. You, Lord, are majestic, high and lifted up. We see you as such. And everything else by comparison as not. We see you as such and we say so and we enjoy it. 
And we declare to you dominion or power and authority. Those are related words, but power is simple ability to make something happen and authority is the proper right to make something happen. So we say, you, O God, you make all things happen. Yours is the dominion. It's what's what's being God's all about. You have power. No one else does. You have utter control over all things. Not a drop of rain falls. Not a hair on our head is plucked. No leaves turn color. Not one single ant dies except by decree from this one who has dominion. Yours is the dominion over all the earth, rightly so, for to you be all authority. All the earth is yours, Lord. You made it. You made it for yourself as you choose and for what your own mind counseled you to do. Ephesians 1.11 runs that around several different times to make clear that God made and God determined what God counseled himself was wise. All the creatures and all the nations do your bidding, Lord. You have dominion because you are their maker, sustainer, guide, and judge. You have authority. And all of our derived authority here, all of it is just in a place beneath you. It is all, it's only ours as long as you decide it will be and then you bring it to an end. We do have some power here now. We move people. We direct. We offer opinions and we enforce our wills. So much of the human experience is all about power. We spend a lot of energy gaining it or trying to avoid it or using it, maybe even abusing it and arguing about it and who should have it. And we act like somebody and we listen to those who act like somebodies. And their words tempt us and their definitions and their redefinitions of things lure us because they seem to be influential. They seem to offer us things. And so maybe we should be inclined to follow them. This is at the heart of temptation. And in place of that, we say, wait a minute. He has dominion and authority. We are small and frail And all of us corrupted and fallen. Bad fruit so often grows on these trees. We should not trust ourselves. But God. There is one. One. Who is able to keep you from stumbling in destructive sin and devastation. There is one who keeps you and makes you to stand holy and pure in his presence at the party that is the wedding feast of all feasts. One. God, our Savior. By the grace and mercy of God, we know him in Christ and through Christ, we say, make this your prayer. Oh God, I see you in your splendid identity. To you be glory. To you be majesty. To you be dominion. To you be authority. In eternity past, that's you. Now, right now in the presence of my enemies, all that's in this book, right now in the presence of my enemies, 
that's still you. And forever and ever and ever into the future, that's you. Glory and majesty and dominion and authority. God our Savior, all of this in Christ for our eternal good and for his eternal glory. And we, his beloved, say, Amen. So be it. Amen. Let me pray. God, you are God. We are people small and frail, prone to wander, easily distracted. Would you cause yourself to sit heavy on us for our joy? now and for forever. Present yourself to us now. Help us to see how you will present us to you, blameless, sure and certain. Lord, thank you. Thank you that in the midst of a context that is often challenging, at the end of this we can say but the one God our Savior is real mighty and strong good and gracious Savior thank you thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84 one two one